Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening. June is Pride Month, and today we'll have a musical observance of LGBTQ composers with W-A-B-E music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart. Atlanta authors and photographers, Ren and Helen Davis, will tell us about their book on George Alexander Grant, the first official photographer for the National Park Service. The Grand Tetons and Yellowstone National Parks form part of the setting of fiction we recommend for summer reading. Peter Heller's 2017 novel, Celine, is about an unlikely detective in the twilight of her life. She takes on the case of Gabriella, who tragically lost her mother as a child. Now an adult, Gabriella's father is presumed dead, though his body was never found. Heller mined his own family background for the novel, beginning with a description of Celine. She's a blue blood. She, you know, her family came on the first boat, and uh, she was born in Paris during the war, or right before the war, uh, Second World War. Her dad was a banker for Morgan's, Harry Watkins. Uh, she grew up in Paris with her elder sister and her littlest, littler sister. And at age seven, the Germans were marching, uh, getting closer and closer to Paris. They fled. She arrived in Manhattan at age seven, not speaking any English. And all she wanted to do as a little girl was be in the French Resistance. <laughs> she would go around Manhattan and listen to people talking and try and figure out who was a Nazi spy. <laughs> so she grew up with this sort of, you know, special ops kind of <laughs> a very unusual um, ambitions for a little girl coming from France. Uh, she lived on the Upper East Side, went to Brearley School for Girls, kind of fancy, went to college, uh, got out, got married early, and then began to work for a detective agency. And she got her PI license and was immediately contacted by the FBI, who wanted to catch a 
man who perpetrated a large bank fraud in the bank in New York, and, and they, they knew his family was from Southern Connecticut, and they didn't have an agent who could kind of mingle with the, the set in old Greenwich and uh, find out where this guy was. So they, they called Celine, who was, um, you know, very elegant. I noticed in the book's dedication that your mother's maiden name was Watkins. Was any of your own mother's life the basis of Celine's character? <laughs> well, all the family history in the in the book is is the history of my family and my mother's family. Really? And Celine is is modeled as closely as I could on my mother. There were a few, I took a few liberties. I conflated a couple of the stories, uh, things that happened to her sisters, and I made them happen to her. But otherwise, you know, the family background is all true. And, you know, my mother was extraordinary because she did want to be a CIA agent, I think. And um, she, you know, was a crack investigator. And she did bring this guy in for the FBI uh, just with the power of sheer moral authority when she found the guy. It's a great story. Uh, she had a car chase in Southern Connecticut, and she spied on the guy with her opera glasses. I mean, it's all, it's all true. And, and she was a crack shot. Uh, my mother could shoot. She could drive. And she was a very, very fine investigator. But she, you know, like Celine, after she caught this guy for the FBI, she said when she brought him in and the, and the special agents put the cuffs on him, uh, she never wanted to see that face again. It was so heartbreaking. And so mm-hmm. she decided, like Celine, to spend her career reuniting birth families. If someone gave up a, a child for adoption and, you know, 30 years later, the child or the mother wanted to find each other. That's what she did. Well, this helps explain your insight into Celine's wealth and being on the highest register of class status. You give more than a glimpse into their rarefied world, and it isn't entirely pretty. I I love when you wrote, no one is better at death by a thousand slights than the wasp aristocracy of the East Coast. (laughs) So Celine is clearly um, a product of her upbringing and a departure from it. Would you tell the story about how Celine reacted when two tough young guys approached her as she was walking alone down a dark New York City street? Yeah, I mean, it's so emblematic of how she was. She was visiting her cousin up at St. Luke's uh, in Harlem, and it was in the 70s, and it was pretty rough. And she was just two in the morning, she was walking down Amsterdam Avenue. It was completely deserted. It was cold. It was windy. You know, there's like litter blowing across the street. You can kind of picture it. And here's her pumps, you know, clack, clack, clack down the street. And two guys jumped out of a doorway, and they were big and pretty menacing and right in front of her. And she looked up, and she said, oh, you must be freezing. Your shirt's all torn. She said, hold on. Let me see if I have a safety pin. And she opened up her purse. And she rummaged around in her purse and pulled out a safety pin. And, you know, she was an artist and she was, you know, really good with her hands. And she carefully folded back, you know, the edge of the guy's rip and pinned it and folded back the other side and then and put the pin through and then patted it tight and said, you know, you'll be, you'll be much warmer now. And the two men were so incredulous. They were like dumbfounded. And they were, they said, hey, this neighborhood's really dangerous. You know, you shouldn't be out here by yourself. What are you doing here? And she said, well, I was saying goodbye to my cousin in the hospital. They said, well, 
you know, we, we insist, you know, we're going to, we're going to walk you to the corner. We're going to stay with you until you get a cab. And of course, no cab would stop. <laughs> so she finally turned to them and said, look, you, you guys were, were on your way to do something. I'll, I'll be fine. And they left and she got in a, in a cab and, and went home. <laughs> That's, that story gives added meaning to disarming. I mean, yeah, but you know, she wasn't she wasn't wily. She was just she met and and my character Celine, you know, she meets people where they live, and that you know, there's always respect. She never condescends. She never assumes, and uh, and that's why she was such a good investigator because people really trusted her and they trust Celine. And you know, county clerks with sealed records will meet her in the bathroom and slide sealed records, you know, from under the stall. <laughs> uh, yeah, remark a remarkable talent for someone who's, you know, uh, an investigator. When we meet Celine, she is grieving the loss of her sisters, and she herself is in poor health, though she continues to work. What kind of cases does she take on? Yeah, she... You know, the cases she takes are never about leverage or retribution. A lot of, of private investigative work, if it's not for a DA or a, or a defense attorney in a criminal case, a lot of that work is sort of, you know, spying on somebody's pied terre You know, it's domestic stuff, um, infidelity, it's uh, fraud. She never did that. She wanted to reunite birth families. She wanted to make people whole, people that grew up not having a birth family, wondering who their parents were, parents that had been forced to give up their kids when they were very, very young. She reunited them, and she reunited over 100 birth families. And I'd say, I think she said, you know, half the time it uh, was one of the most significant events in, in a person's life because they got this, there was, a, there was an aching vacuum, and she somehow got to heal it and fill it, which is pretty cool. Amazing. Celine's husband, Pete, is a great guy. And in depicting him, I sensed an admiration that you may have for no-nonsense, stolid New Englanders. Is that fair to presume? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, uh, Pete is a seventh-generation Maine Islander where I guess reticence is like the state bird. <laughs> I love that line. And his half smile is his way of giving vigorous applause. Right. And uh, he really is like that. I mean, Pete lives in that place, in that loft, on the dock, under the Brooklyn Bridge. And, and he, you know, he grew up building small boats and pitching hay and, you know, cooking for nine brothers and sisters when his mother was busy. I mean, he and, uh, you know, as I said in the book, Pete channels these prodigious skills into into trying to get his wife to eat a vegetable, which she never does, <laughs> and and into carving unabashedly erotic sculptures, which the cleaning lady refuses to dust. Why do Pete and Celine work so well together? I think they're, they're well. First of all, there's a ton of respect, and they're both super smart, but they have different minds. You know, this is this was so fun to write about an investigative team who were, you know, both sh super sharp great skills, but had very different ways of thinking. Uh, Celine is intuitive. She s goes by her nose. She can smell, uh, you know, the odd quirk that doesn't quite fit, the anomaly. Uh, she smells it out. Uh, Pete 
on the other hand, uh, you know, he's a woodworker. He has his chisels all in a row going from, you know, smaller to larger on the, on the wall. He's got his planes. Everything's in order. His mind is very ordered. He goes back to primary causes and is very analytical. And so the two of them, uh, in a way, they're like good cop, bad cop. I mean, they're kind of like the cop that, that talks and the one who doesn't. But uh, with this sort of different mindset, you know, sh- she can be analytical, but she really has this great intuition and a great sense of people and a great sense of motive, what, what drives people, especially when she meets them. And then, you know, Pete, uh, you know, can really sift through records and think about, you know, the, the facts. So... In addition to all that, all those great senses, she also has a great sense of style, we should note. Someone referred to her as the Prada PI, but she, in fact, did not wear Prada, right? (laughs) Yeah, she says, oh, that was silly, the Prada PI. I I never wore Prada in my life. And the other person said, well, Chanel doesn't alliterate. (laughs) (laughs) Loved it. Gabriella is the young woman who comes to Celine with her story and one which involves unanswered questions Gabriella has about her father's death. What is it about this cold case that's so attractive to Celine? Well, she was someone that, in her own way, as a little girl, had lost her own father. Uh, not not in the same way, but I, I won't spoil it. But I think it was a wound for her that she carried with her her whole life. And to have this little girl, or, she'd been a little uh, little girl when she'd lost her mother, so she was now a young woman who was orphaned, I think really, you know, it struck a bell for Celine, and it, it, it was really uh, sort of vibrated all the strings, you know, everything that she was really about. And so, you know, she gladly took the case, I think, in a way to help heal her own past losses. Celine is one of three sisters, and you write with a very sympathetic perspective of female characters. What gives you that insight? I don't know. You know, I really wanted to do it because, you know, the dog, I have written two novels before this, The Dog Stars and The Painter. And they're both pretty male books. I mean, you know, they're about men and the, the guys are, you know, kind of tough dudes and they're sort of guys, guys. And, you know, one's a painter and he's, you know, he's sensitive, but he's kind of a fighter. And, and Hig and The Dog Stars is a, is a, you know, he's a hunter, he's a fisherman, he's a survivor. And, I know that half my readership are men just from, uh, you know, emails that I get. And that's thrilling to me that, you know, so many men are enjoying these literary novels. That's really cool. And I think I wanted to present myself with a challenge. You know, could I, one of my favorite writers, a novelist is Jim Harrison. He wrote a, and his characters are, are oftentimes macho guys, but he wrote a beautiful, beautiful novel called Dalva in which he, you know, assumes the character he writes in the voice, in the first-person voice of, of, uh, of a woman. And he's, I think he pulls it off. Lots and lots of women love that book. And so I wanted to present myself with that challenge and see if I could do it. And, you know, I grew up, I have two sisters. You know, I had a mom, like we all do. And uh, some of my best friends are women. And I just wanted to see if I could, um, 
you know, do anything right. <laughs> so I'm glad you said that it, that it might have worked. The story set in 2002. How does the impact of the 9-11 terror attacks inform some of the narrative? Yeah, I, I describe in the very first pages of the book after the prologue, she gets a phone call right at the start of chapter one. She's in her studio at the base of the Brooklyn Bridge on the Brooklyn side. It's the first building, catty corner to the River Cafe there. And she gets a call from Gabriella Lamont asking uh, for help in finding her dad. And uh, right after that, uh, there's a section about how Celine doesn't know if she has the strength because it had been such a rough year. It was a year and a day after the plane struck the World Trade Centers. And then, you know, I describe what that was like for her because she could stand in her window and and watch the towers burn and watch them fall down. And, you know, my mom actually did that. And, and I have to confess something that's that's odd. And when I heard that these guys had brought down the towers and that Mom, who does have, who did have emphysema like Celine, who was, you know, at the end of her life, that she stood in her windows and watched them fall, and that it that it broke her heart in a way that is, you know, almost can't be described. I was almost more mad at the terrorists for, you know, making my mother witness that than anything else. Isn't that funny? I mean, it's it's not right, but. But I felt that was my emotional response. And she had lost her both her sisters that year, her younger sister. Celine had lost her younger sister Mimi, her older sister Bobby, all in the, all in the past year. And this, I think, you know, she sort of, it was, it was symbolic, I think, you know, that the, the South Tower was Missy and the North Tower Bobby in some ways. And so her inner world was reflected in the outer world. And it was all loss and it was all grief. Mm. And, uh, you know, it, it was tough to come out of. And I think this case that Gabriella brought to her gave her a reason to go on and kind of fired her up and got her back out on the road and back into investigating. I feel like Celine is ripe for a sequel, if not a series. Have you given that any thought? Oh, yeah. You know, as soon as I finished it, I realized that there was, there was so much of her life that was still mysterious and, you know, yet to be explored. And I, I didn't mean to do I You know, I, I write from a first line and I never plan a book. I never think, you know, I want to write a book about this or I just start with a first line and I'm carried by the music and the language and that leads me into the story. And so... You know, it wasn't even my intent to write about someone similar to my mom. You know, it wasn't, that was not it. I began, actually began the story with the first line, my mother's name was Amana Ambrosio. In Tupi Warani, Amana means night rain. So that was, you know, I began with Gabriella's story, and then pretty soon she was calling this investigator, and this investigator was a lot like my mom. And then I sort of realized, well, gee, I, I guess that was my original intent was to somehow unconscious intent was to write a, a book about my mother. And so uh, I didn't plan it. I didn't plan to leave anybody hanging. But when I finished the book, I was like, huh, <laughs> it could be there could be Celine Watkins mysteries if you know, if I wanted to do that. You know, I could see writing some novels and then coming back to it. Author Peter Heller in 2017, discussing his novel, Celine. The book could be nice summer reading. 
If you enjoy a good detective story with vivid description of the Grand Tetons and Yellowstone National Parks. The first official photographer for the National Park Service is the subject of our next segment. We'll return after a short break on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. George Alexander Grant set out to be a park ranger, but once he discovered photography and had a horseback riding accident, he dedicated himself to the craft and eventually became the chief photographer for the National Park Service. He was the first ever. That was in 1929, and during his life, he took somewhere between 30 and 40,000 photos for the National Park Service. But unlike landscape photographers such as Ansel Adams, you probably haven't heard of him. Two Atlanta authors are trying to change that. Ren and Helen Davis put together a book of George Grant's photography. I spoke with the pair about landscapes for the people. In 2006, we were doing research at the National Park Service Historic Photographic Collection in Charlestown, West Virginia, and we had a folder of photographs of men in the CCC, and I looked at this one picture of Jackson Lake at the Grand Teton National Park, and I said, Wren, I think this might be an Ansel Adams, because like most people, we associated Ansel Adams with the national parks. And we turned the photograph over and we were introduced to George Grant. And we looked at numerous other photographs with the archivist, all of them this exceptionally high quality, black and white, uh, vivid images, and repeatedly thought, this looks like an Ansel Adams, this looks like an Ansel Adams, but every time we'd turn it over, we would see the name George Grant. And we finally asked the archivist, we said, okay, who is George Grant? And he explained that he was the first staff photographer and then later the first chief photographer of the National Park Service. And we said, okay, how come we've never heard his name? And then he went on to explain further that in his position as a staff photographer, nearly everything he ever had published, the credit line was simply National Park Service. Very rarely was his own name listed. So he worked in the shadow of many of the great photographers of that era, the Ansel Adams, the Edwin Westons the Elliott Porters, but did not get the recognition that they got 
despite the fact that millions of people saw his photographs in books and magazines and newspapers and park materials, museum exhibits, but again, they did not know who he was much beyond the folks in the Park Service itself. He was unknown. I think about some of the magnificent cathedrals, medieval European structures, um, the artists and craftsmen that toiled over those structures. And of course, we never know their names. Mm -hmm. But here in the 20th century, Mm -hmm. there was precedent for artists being credited. Why do you suppose he remained under the radar? I think in part because he was a fairly self-effacing, humble person, and he he loved photographing the parks, and he was not so much self-promoting in that sense. He was uh, delighted to carry out the assignments that the Park Service asked him to carry out, even though it, it led to a very, I would describe, solitary lifestyle in many ways because he was in the field for months at a time, traveling from park to park to park. Uh, In the book, we said that we estimate he traveled about 140,000 miles during his Park Service career, much of it in a specially outfitted panel truck that he called the hearse because literally that's what it was like. And it was his uh, his darkroom chemicals, his camera equipment, his provisions, his... his, uh, Camping equipment that he had to have because he would be on the road for weeks going from park to park. And these were dirt roads and gravel roads. So it was a arduous, hard occupation. And the 140,000 miles you reported on his traveling, that would have had an impact on his personal life. I mean, how could he possibly settle down if he was constantly in motion? He, he he recognized, I think, early on that his occupation, his passion, was not conducive to a married life, and he made the, we think, the conscious decision to remain a bachelor for the for his life because it was, he was married to his work in many ways. There so. is a very dramatic photo in the book of the map which he um, outlined all of his various routes. That was a 1933 gas station map, and he started drawing on it in 33 of all of his travels from 1929 to 1962. But I love the quote that he put on the bottom. It was from Joseph Conrad that said, of all the sciences, geography finds its origins in action, and what is more adventurous action? And his life really was quite an adventure. Well, how would you describe his subjects? I think um, they're exquisite, well-composed images. Uh, He did not have the creative freedom that an Ansel Adams had to create fine artwork, although I think many of his works would have been considered fine art. He was very much an assignment photographer. We almost think of him as an as a commercial or, pro- or advertising photographer. And if you look at all the major body of his work, it is of beautiful landscapes, but of people in the landscapes, because the, the focus for his work was to show everyday Americans enjoying their national parks. And this was a, an initiative of the Roosevelt administration in the 1930s during the New Deal, was to promote visitation of the national parks. So it was very intentional that he was 
I won't say instructed, but certainly encouraged to show people enjoying the landscape and to show them in a scale that showed the grandeur of the landscape. The cover of the book is a wonderful photograph from Mount Rainier, and it's, it's, it's a magnificent landscape image in its own right. But when you look in the corner, there are the people at this magnificent pullout looking at this beautiful mountain standing next to their 1930s automobile. It's a timeless image, and also it captures a moment in time. It's very heartening to hear that the National Park Service was eager for Grant's work to be celebrated and for his life to be better known. Because today we think about fights and lawsuits over intellectual property, and that that just mm-hmm. doesn't enter into any of this. No, we the people of the United States on those photographs. They're public domain. That's that's surprising when you look at some of the beauty of these images and realize that they are public domain. They may be hard to get your hands on them because very few of all of the photographs have actually been digitized. They are sitting in manila folders and file cabinets in the back of a, a storage building. But we did give to the National Park Service Every photograph that we digitized, we gave them a high-resolution image of that photograph so they do have that in their files because they have very few staff members left that are able to do this work, and they just can't change these photographs into digital images. Lack of funding? Funding Oh, tremendous lack of funding. When we first started working in 2006, there were about 12 full-time employees. Now there's one. These photos don't give the impression that Grant was constrained by the cameras or lenses or even the printing techniques Mm -hmm. of the early 20th century. They have a very modern feel. They were, they were restored and color-corrected by the, the laboratory that did the work because some of them were very faded. Some of them had, you know, stains and things that had to be fixed. So I think George Grant would be pleased with the way they looked. But he was, he was a straight photographer in the sense that he wanted to capture the scene as it appeared to the human eye, not manipulated greatly. Um, so it, it, we hope it, it looks modern, but I also think it also captures the, the technique and the, the, the composition and the style of the times in which they were taken. The ones we, we scanned were principally 5 by 7 contact prints. He was using a 5 by 7 field camera. That camera, along with the, the film holders and the tripod, he would, lo- he would be lugging 30, 40, 50 pounds of equipment into his photographic location. When we think about today, we we hike a trail with our cell phone camera or our little (laughs) digital camera, and it is so vastly different today compared to what the Ansel Adamses and the Westons and the Porters and Grant had to carry with them to be able to produce images. And they were, they were, uh, had to be great patience because the lighting had to be just right. Now, Ansel Adams could spend days and days at a photographic location waiting for the perfect lighting or the perfect cloud cover or whatever it might be. George is moving from place to place. He doesn't have that kind of flexibility in his schedule to wait for perfection, but he did the best he could with 
the time available to him. And we think he did a remarkable job when we look at the quality of the composition, the quality of the exposure, that he was able to capture very detailed images, edge-to-edge sharp. Um, the skies are not washed out. Uh, there's, there's, there's depth in the shadows. And he, he and Ansel Adams were colleagues. They knew each other. We, know, we learned from documents. We couldn't find a direct link between the two of them that they worked together, but we do know that they worked for some of the same senior officials in the interpretive and education branch of the National Park Service. And we like to think that they passed on a trail somewhere. We know that George cited Ansel Adams as a character reference when he needed one for a document after World War II as well as Edward Steichen, who was another renowned photographer of the era. So he, he traveled in that circle, but he was sort of always, best we can determine, kind of in the background. He was not uh, recognized, as, as you, you've pointed out, widely during his lifetime. His photo of Death Valley is surreal. Mm-hmm. And there are so many striking images in your collection. I know this is like asking which lung do you prefer, your left or your right, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but are there some photos in particular that stand out for you? For me, the cover photograph. I mean, when when I pulled that image out of the file folder and looked at it, I looked at Helen and I said, if the book ever comes to pass, we already have a sense of what the title should be. This image conveys that message. This is a landscape for the people. This belongs to everyone. And these are people in the scale of the landscape looking at this magnificent site of Mount Rainier. And we said, that captures it all in one image. I think I have two that might be my favorites. Sand dunes near stovepipe wells. Mm. That was a photograph that he did enter in a competition. He took it in 1935, and he entered a competition in 1937. It was the um, New York Explorers Club first photographic competition. There were 300 photographs entered. One was from Ansel Adams, and George Grant won that prize. And then another one that I love so much is uh, Logan Pass, at Glacier National Park. It's the dedication to the Going to the Sun Highway. And the scenery is beautiful, but what moves me even more is that there are 4,000 people standing singing America the Beautiful when this photograph was taken. Now, that one gives me shivers every time I see it. That's where I see the beauty, the majesty that we have preserved in our national parks. Wren and Helen Davis are the authors of Landscapes for the People, a collection of photos by George Alexander Grant, the first official photographer for the National Park Service. WABE City Lights music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart joins us in studio now with a celebration of past and present LGBTQ composers in the classical arena. Scott, welcome 
and happy Pride Month. Hey, good morning, Lois. It's so great to be back. Happy Pride Month to you. And you're right, there have been significant strides in rights for LGBTQ plus individuals and major shifts in public acceptance and inclusivity around world populations, always in the news every day. Um, but there's still lots of work to be done, of course. Among history's celebrated non-heterosexual individuals are many well-known, beloved classical music composers and performers. That's right. And it's maybe not a list you would search for, but a lot of times when we find these lists, we're shocked to see the number of conductors and composers and performers that are somewhere on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. And uh, we actually kind of pay tribute to them throughout the years since it's hard to avoid a concert or a show without hearing Handel or Schubert or Tchaikovsky or Britton or Copeland, and the list goes on and on. And while research about composers' personal lives can be challenging especially in cultural situations where homosexuality was taboo or even illegal. Um, we have both speculation, you know, kind of water cooler talk, but also some direct evidence with more recent composers about musicians uh, that go back maybe as far as the Baroque era. Music of Leonard Bernstein from the ballet Fancy Free. Scott, we concluded a two-year centennial examination of the life and music of Leonard Bernstein, including several segments on City Lights last summer, which we dubbed the Lentennial. <laughs> Bernstein is firmly established as one of America's most successful musicians who soared to fame as a composer, both in classical and Broadway circles, as well as being a brilliant conductor, educator, TV star, and social activist. That's right. And Bernstein dominated New York society in a very celebrity-hungry culture. Everything about Lenny was larger than life, and his personal life was no exception in this area. We have lots of legendary tales of eating and drinking and smoking and fraternizing and romancing. Um, we probably didn't have all the adjectives 
to label Bernstein during his lifetime. He probably wouldn't have accepted them anyway. But it seems clear that he was a gay man who had relationships with men throughout his life, starting back at Harvard, but also married singer Felicia Montalegre and had three children with her. And to say that it was a sham marriage to pacify conservative New York Philharmonic board members or the public, really would not be accurate. He loved That's her. right. He dearly loved Felicia. And although they briefly separated in the early 1970s when Bernstein met and fell in love with Tom Cothran, they reconciled in 1977. But it was only a year later that Felicia died of lung cancer, and he was devastated by her, her, her death. Um, among the many compositions for the Broadway stage that Bernstein wrote was West Side Story from 1957, and it really remains his most brilliant and popular and most performed composition. Here's the mambo section from the Symphonic Dances. Such exhilarating music. It's interesting to note that the entire collaborative team for West Side Story, Bernstein's music, Jerome Robbins' choreography, Stephen Sondheim's lyrics, and Arthur Lawrence's direction, these were all gay Jewish men at the top of the Broadway ladder in a very socially conservative 1950s America. Yeah, and I know that Broadway sometimes gets a little wink-wink, nudge-nudge for being gay. But think of West Side Story, a, a, a story about racial violence in very racially charged America at this time, a story based on Romeo and Juliet, which is basically a story about forbidden love, and uh, a, a very um, kind of racy, edgy, violent musical at a time when Broadway was producing Oklahoma and Fiddler on the Roof and South Pacific, very gentle Rodgers and Hammerstein shows. So it's a really, uh, a really iconic musical, I think, not just for Broadway history, but for anyone who may have felt marginalized at the mm. time. I like that analysis, Scott. Well, while this struggle isn't over... It seems like it has become a more inclusive landscape for women, people of color, and composers on the LGBTQ plus spectrum to be accepted as artists in their own right. But 
sadly, we know musicians who experience deep personal pain because of culture's lack of acceptance, and that certainly was the case with Tchaikovsky. As a person, Tchaikovsky was shy and very insecure, and on top of that, he was aware of his homosexuality from his youth, but he struggled with societal pressures to repress it, especially in Tsarist Russia, where it was a crime. Yeah. In fact, in 1877, Tchaikovsky arranged a sham marriage with a young female music student, but this ended in weeks. And Tchaikovsky suffered a nervous breakdown and even attempted suicide. We have correspondence now and journal entries which give us insight into Tchaikovsky's struggles. And even though the biographical waters are still a little muddied by anti-gay censorship in Russia, we know that he had a lot of infatuations and a lot of loves um, in his youth and throughout his adult life. And in spite of what was a frequently depressed life, Tchaikovsky produced some of the most joyous music in the repertoire. So check out the finale to the Symphony Number no. 4. Pretty stunning, and I've rarely been to a Tchaikovsky fourth performance that the audience just doesn't kind of go screaming to their feet afterwards, whether it's a youth orchestra at an all-state orchestra event or Atlanta Symphony. This is gripping music and, and full of the joy of life. And yet, even with the fourth, Scott, he included notes, he included um, something of a program mm-hmm. that it was about fate and, uh, you know, trying to, in more recent vernacular, pull himself up yeah, by his yeah. bootstraps. Um, depression was ever present, yeah. but it you don't have to be happy to write happy music. That's right. It is interesting that Russian President Vladimir Putin, who does not have a strong record with Mm -hmm. LGBTQ plus rights, commented in a 2013 interview that Tchaikovsky was gay. Although it's true, we don't love him because of that, but he was a great musician and we all love his music, so what? Hmm. In spite of this, there have been a series of anti-LGBTQ plus policies passed under Putin's regime. At least he admitted he was That's gay. right. Little baby steps.
The Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, conducted by music director Robert Spahner in that 2003 recording of Blue Cathedral yeah. by Jennifer Higdon. Blue Cathedral is a brilliant composition. It was commissioned by the Curtis Institute of Music back in 1999 for its 75th anniversary. Jennifer Higdon is a member of the Atlanta School of Composers, so we regularly get to see her in Atlanta. <laughs> She's a faculty member at Curtis. She's a Pulitzer Prize and Grammy winner and a really just an amazing individual. Lovely, very grounded person. Jennifer married her longtime partner, Cheryl Lawson, in August of 2014, whom she'd met in band class Yay. in high school. Yay, music class. Baltimore Symphony Orchestra <laughs> music director Marin Alsop officiated at their wedding. How's that I think for? that would be one of the coolest ceremonies yeah. ever. Uh, Jennifer is happy to talk about all the different strands of her identity, being a woman in a largely male-dominated classical music profession, being a lesbian in a largely heterosexual world, but she also champions the teaching and performing of and listening to music by any quality composer whose voice might otherwise be minimized by social conditions or history. Let's step back in time a little bit. Aaron Copland is one of America's best-loved composers, and fortunately for him, he lived during most of the 20th century when the taboo of being homosexual was waning. And Copland was really interesting about this. He was out, but he was fairly quiet about his personal life. Um, He traveled, however, openly with boyfriends of the time or life partners, But because his homosexuality was no secret, Copeland was investigated by Joseph McCarthy and the House on Un-American Activities Committee. And in fact, a Lincoln portrait was actually excluded from Dwight Eisenhower's inauguration by some Republican senators who thought it was unpatriotic. It's always been one of the great ironies of music history that the sound that we associate with the American West has been defined by the tone poems and the ballets and the film music of a gay Jewish guy from Brooklyn.
the happy ending from The Red Pony by Aaron Copeland. And I hope the takeaway and happy ending from all of this is that all musicians, including many composers on the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender spectrum, will continue to make impactful and lasting contributions to art and that they find an inclusive home in the world's musical, theatrical, and dance institutions. Hopefully that's the model that we're all striving for, that there's more literal and figurative harmony in our world in what sometimes can be judgmental and divisive. Oh, Scott, we're always proud of you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this wonderful list of Pride Month listening. Dr. Scott Stewart is WABE film music contributor. He's WABE City Lights music contributor and host of Strike Up the Band. Scott Stewart is on the music faculty of the Westminster Schools and conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back with another show tomorrow at 11 a.m. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. You can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. And check out our new podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.